This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. So, Blair, let's go, let's go back. Let's mm-hmm. go back to the real basics. Um, because I still, you know, I talk about this show to people, and I say the words licensed insolvency trustee, and sometimes I get a knowing nod, and sometimes mm-hmm. I go, they look at me like, what? What is that? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about... Um, your story or the story of the company, how mm-hmm. it started. Uh, let's just go through that a little bit. Yeah. So, so taking it all the way back to 1990, um, Sands & Associates was founded. It was founded as a really small um, insolvency boutique firm, um, you know, just one office at the time, a couple of employees. And uh, it was a couple of trustees at the time who had decided to leave a big practice where they did, you know, 150 different things to focus on really one thing, which is helping individuals and small businesses um, get out of debt. So, since then, we've grown to 17 offices. Uh, we're all over the Lower Mainland. We've got offices on Vancouver Island right now. Uh, we've expanded to the interior of BC as well. And all we do is focus on helping individuals and small businesses solve their financial problems. So that's a fairly, I mean, that's a great sentence, but it's really uh, an impactful thing that you and everyone who works at Sands mm-hmm. & Associates does or feels as a result of the work that you do for people. Like a yeah. huge impact. It's way bigger than just the numbers, Elaine. So, you know, it, it just boggles the mind each day, the number of people that, you know, phone us up or come in for meetings with us that are facing the toughest point in their life, you know, not sure where the next dollar is going to come from or where the person's going to show up at the door taking their assets. And, you know, we give people hope. So one of the things I'm most proud about with the firm is we try to create a safe space. So when someone comes in to see us, it's not a case of let's make you feel terrible about all the mistakes that you've made. It's let's look at where you are right now and how do you potentially move forward without judgment, without being talked down to, without being condescended to. So the ethos of our firm is really understanding that debt is just one part of an overall picture of an individual, of a family, and debt might just be one problem that someone's facing. Often, debt is a result of a bunch of other life events that you would never wish on anyone, and when it happens to you, you'd wish that you were greeted with compassion. And I don't want this to sound really, I don't know what the word is, like suck but everybody that I've met from the organization, from the company Sands and Associates, you're pretty compassionate people. So, mm-hmm. the, so y- that seems to be also part of your culture. Yeah, and and that's true. And I think. You know, there's the easy part to the job and the hard part, and I, I, you'll understand what I mean in a second. You know, the easy part is making the debt go away, right. um, because the legislation is written. Um, you know, if you've got too much debt, you don't have assets to satisfy this debt. The government basically mandates that you have the right to get a financial fresh start through either a bankruptcy or a proposal. So anyone that's qualified as a trustee can apply the law and get you a result. The harder part is really helping somebody restructure and turn things around completely themselves, um, from an emotional point of view, from um, you know a self worth point of view, treating somebody with respect all the way along, that can be a challenge sometimes when people don't even feel that about themselves, that they're deserving of any respect sometimes. So the harder part of my job is sometimes helping people see, you know, beyond what they're facing right now, but looking to the future with some optimism that things can be different. 
So almost the flip side of that could be uh, that attitude that I'm sure lots of people have, even though what what their statement says or what the hard facts say, uh, that they can't even comprehend that this is actually happening. This is actually Mm -hmm. going on for me. This is actually happening and coming to terms with that. Yeah, so many people think, you know, it's never going to happen to me. And sometimes that's when people are judgmental is when they just can never see themselves in that situation. And, you know, hopefully... Most people listening will never be in that situation. Um, But something that I've learned, I learned it very quickly, is you wouldn't believe how quickly money problems can start. So, you know, there's an old adage of, you know, how did you go bankrupt? Well, gradually and then all at once. Um, Because when debt starts to snowball upon itself, when interest starts to compound on interest, when one collector starts calling, usually then four start calling, then 10, um, you know, problems can really spiral out of control quickly. Um, And, you know, most of the time what brings people to see us, it's a heartbreaking crisis. You know, it's not a matter if they just spent money frivolously and didn't care about the outcome of it. I see that very rarely, you know, probably fingers of one hand and 10 years of practice, more than 10 years. You know, usually it's a sudden job loss. It's a sickness. It's a divorce. It's a business failure. It's one of those big life events that unfortunately has large financial consequences that can follow it. Um, And I know that... it's sometimes surprising who who is in debt or who gets impacted by this mm-hmm. because it's one of those things that people don't t- talk about right yeah. off the bat. Like you talk about the weather, you talk about your vacations, but you don't necessarily talk about your financial situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's all work, all walks of life, Elaine. So you know, in the past week, I've helped everyone from you know very very sophisticated financial professionals, you know, making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, um, to folks who are working very you know entry level retail jobs who are struggling to pay their rent, which is almost $2,000 a month in Vancouver. So it really is, you know, from the the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum all the way up to to the high end. Uh, But what's common is that these folks are overextended. You know, they've got more debt than they're able to pay back. And again, just about everyone that I've seen, it's a big, big issue in their life. They're taking it seriously. It's impacting their relationships. It's impacting their health, their optimism, their ability to even earn income. Some people are even scared to go to a job interview because they're so worried a collector is going to start lighting up their phone during that job interview and going to take, you know, take them away from being able to even present themselves effectively. So it can be a very limiting type of thing for a lot of people. Now, uh, the, the nice thing or the cool thing about this segment is we're actually going to hear some real life stories mm-hmm. from folks that you've helped I'm thrilled over about the that. years. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool indeed. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the the pieces and the series that you guys have created? Yeah. So I, I joined Sands and Associates, you know, I guess about 13 years ago now or so. And, you know, originally all our marketing was all about us and what we can do. And, you know, it's something for, for me to, you know, write an article or, or be interviewed somewhere and say, you know, here's what I can do for you. But what really matters is the people that we've helped. Would they come forward and tell others, you know, hey, this is the situation that I faced. Um, here's how I was helped and encourage others to, get, to basically do the same. Trustees, trustees across Canada have had a notoriously difficult time getting clients to tell their story publicly because, as you can imagine, people are scared. They're embarrassed. They don't want to be judged. Uh, we've had incredible success at Sands and Associates. So I think we're the only firm definitely within BC and possibly within Canada that has a series of completely
completely unscripted, um, 100% client-based testimonials, uh, where we're going to listen to just four of them today um, for very different individuals, different stages of life. And just in a quick 30 seconds, um, you're going to hear what they were facing, what we were able to do for them, um, essentially how their life is today. So pretty action-packed 30 seconds. Um, So why don't we start with our first one, if we can. This will be Ian. Um, And Ian was a gentleman um, who originally was with the Canadian Armed Forces, um, eventually got into some debt problems. And you'll hear again his 30-second story um, starting pretty shortly here. My financial problems have been going on for over 25 years. Ever since I was uh, a young man who left the armed forces, I thought everything was fine. But then I lost my job. I thought I was going to be homeless. When I first went to the office of Sands and Associates, it was a welcoming feeling. I wasn't judged. And they're like, it's okay. We know we can, we can fix this. I felt that weight off my shoulders, gone, for the first time in a very long time. It actually looks like I've got a great future ahead of me. All thanks to Sands and Associates. You know, one of the things, too, I want to add before we go to our next clip of uh, Jessica is that uh, people are telling their stories uh, after working with you, your your team of people, um, because of that compassion that we talked about, Mm -hmm. I think, right? Because otherwise people wouldn't be that forthcoming. That, right? like that's what I think. That yeah. whole safe space that you create for folks coming in the door, I think that's I think that's to your credit, to the yeah. Sands and Associates credit for it, sure. It actually it surprised me so much, Elaine, that when I approached um, individuals who were willing to sell their, to tell their story, how quickly they said, "Yes, I want to do this. I want to help others. I want to, you know people that were in a tough situation. I suffered. I don't want others to suffer so much." Yeah. So this next clip, can I talk about Jessica? Of course, yes. Yeah. So this is a pretty cool story because I think it's really typical of so many. Many people. Um, she got her first credit card. It was offered to her at age 18. And mm-hmm. we know that credit card companies go after young people, especially students. And, and parents help that by making sure their kids got a credit card when they head off to university, if it's across the country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but she eventually found herself consumed uh, by that, uh, trying to manage all of her debts while she was working. So she had a job mm-hmm. even, but her a really super important dem- job. Yeah. a super demanding job too mm-hmm. as a paramedic. So let's listen to Jessica. I started collecting debt when I was 18 years old. I had four credit cards carrying a student loan as well as a personal loan, working as a paramedic, and then you go home to your mattress on the floor. It just doesn't really make sense. After my first meeting with Sands and Associates, I stopped getting calls from collectors. I feel like there was a rainbow over top of me when I left, and I feel like I can plan for my future. I don't think I could say enough good things about Sands and Associates because for me, it's been life-changing. See, the other thing, too, about uh, arming uh, young people as they head off to university and college and things uh, with credit card, I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. totally makes sense. But um, you c- it's easy to get into, get in deeper than you think. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, with, with Jessica, she was starting out on her own with, you know, a great career, you know, making the world a better place, helping people in critically life-threatening situations. Yeah. Um, but, and she even brought this on the day that we interviewed her, she couldn't afford to buy a bottle of water. She had Tupperware containers. She would fill with water in the morning, um, and that was how bad it got for her. She said she never knew if her debit card was going to work or not. She mentioned in that in that clip about you know the mattress on the floor. So this is somebody out there saving lives, but because her debt had gotten so out of control, all of her money was going to pay interest payments, and she really wasn't able to live at such a young age. You can't see her obviously, but if you see the commercial, you know she's very early twenties or so. She's very early in her career to get this started. Yeah, and to be saddled with that, I mean, it's sort of the good news, bad news is the bad news is she's had to suffer 
suffer through this. The good news is she's figured out some really important lessons at a mm-hmm. super young age that we don't all get a chance to, to figure out. That's that right. Young. And what I really loved about her clip as well, she said when you know, when she left the first meeting, she felt like there's a rainbow over top of her. Yeah. You know, her outlook was different. The number of people, Elaine, that tell me after that first meeting, they were walking on air. They felt like they had something they could look forward to. They had some hope. And the toughest thing is just getting someone to attend that first meeting because they don't know what they're walking into. But these testimonials will say it's a good thing in general. Do you want to talk about Peter, the next clip? Yeah. So, so Peter is definitely um, typical. Of, of a lot of individuals that I see where they're self-employed and often when it's your own business, you take everything personally to the extent you need to make sure suppliers get paid, customers get, get uh, dealt with, and then sometimes you're the last on the list to actually get your needs satisfied. So let's hear Peter's story here. I was a pretty successful contractor in the Okanagan. When the economy took a downturn, I ended up saddled with a debt of just under $100,000. It was tough. My life got pretty low. After my initial consultation with Sands and Associates, I felt like I had a new beginning. I didn't feel that I was just a number. They had a genuine heartfelt interest in wanting to see me do better. I've gone from being $100,000 in debt to almost that same amount of money in the bank. Sands and Associates helped me change my life. So if any of uh, this information and hearing these people's stories is resonating with you, then this is an opportunity. I mean, this is what this show is all about, dollars and cents. Uh, But check out Sands & Associates' website. It's really, really great because there's just so much good information on it. Good questions, good answers. It's sands-trustee.com. Or if you'd like to give them a call and set up your first consultation, easy enough to do. I'll give you the 1-800 number, one 800 As well, you can find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. So this segment's all about bankruptcy, and we've talked about bankruptcies before, the concept, how they work, but it's still a very scary word for people. That's right. And I just can't, uh, I just think it's a really important topic every time that we talk about it, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about it, and how it works, and how it can impact you. Yeah, and sometimes partial information, partial understanding, you know, well-meaning friends or family members who might have heard something from somebody, that can really send people down a bad path. So, um, you know, today we're going to talk about some hesitations, some objections, some, um, you know, even some myths that people think happen if you file for bankruptcy and really clear the air and let people know it is an option. It's not something you go into lightly. You don't go bankrupt on the, on the way to lunch not thinking about it. Right. Um, but for someone who's in a tough situation, I have people tell me often it's one of the best things they ever did in their lives to help them move forward. So I think one of the, the, the key things about the discussion Discussion in this segment, at least, or, or something to keep in mind, is that, and we've said this before, you're not alone when it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. So do you have numbers off the top of your head about oh, how, how many people <laughs> declare bankruptcy in, and we're to, like, can we talk about in, in nationally and then sort of narrow it down a bit? Yeah, yeah. So nationally, it ranges between 100 to 120,000 people in Canada every year, year in and year out, do either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And, you know, some provinces more 
more prevalent than others. In Quebec, the bankruptcy rate is very high. In Newfoundland, the bankruptcy rate is very high. In Ontario, proposal rate is much higher. So it's a little different from region to region. In the province of BC in 2018, so for the full year, 10,000 BC consumers filed a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So in and around almost 1,000 people per month, every month, and that's starting to accelerate these last few months. And it's not, I mean, uh, not that I want to say that it's not good, but it, boy, oh boy, there's something going on if those are the kinds of numbers that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, uh, oof, boy, it's, uh, it's not a great time. Yeah, and you know, trustees were always busy because you know, basically, life events happen at different points to everybody, whether it's Absolutely. divorce, job loss, or um, illness, things like that. But definitely, there is a tie to the economy. And trustees in two thousand seven to two thousand and nine were very, very busy because that was the Great Recession. A lot of things were sure. happening, and folks needed help. Um, every trustee that I speak with, and I was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago with trustees across the country for the next five years. Trustees are imagining it'll be very, very busy, and it's been picking up the last six months across the country. I always think, too, about the cost of things, the cost of living, especially mm-hmm. in the lower mainland when, when I'm here. It's like crazy. I don't know how folks are doing it, especially young people are doing it. So yeah. uh, there's lots of reasons why it happens. Well, and it's cost of living and also a cost of doing business. So mm-hmm. many small business people that come in to see me, you know, whether it's a new employer payroll tax or, you know, just various levies that are passed along to them. Um, and even an inability to even hire staff at a reasonable wage because the cost of living is so high. Yeah. So, yeah, problems at BC, it's not easy to, to be financially successful, I think, at any level, whether you're self-employed or not. So can you walk us through some of the basics of bankruptcy, start at the beginning, what it is, how it works, and mm-hmm. especially in BC? Yeah, so bankruptcy, it's a legal process regulated by the federal government, but you don't need to hire a lawyer or go to court to file. You can't do a bankruptcy on your own. You've got to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, and the trustee is going to guide you through every step of the process. So bankruptcy is going to allow an individual to have virtually all of their debts written off if they're no longer able to meet their financial obligations. So it could include credit cards, payday loans, um, overdraft, student loans, income tax debt, just about any debt that you can incur um, can be discharged as part of a bankruptcy. See, and that's interesting because uh, uh, owing money to the federal government, like income tax, mm-hmm. etc., doesn't always get sort of covered, but in a bankruptcy, it does. Yeah, people are so surprised when I tell them, yeah, tax debt is just like any other debt, and that's the difference of dealing with a trustee because I can use the law. I'm not just an unlicensed credit counselor, for example. Um, I can use the law to reduce and eliminate all debts that are out there. Now, is it very expensive to file for bankruptcy? Well, it depends, right? So the way bankruptcy works, is it's geared to your income. So if somebody is low income, which means for a single person, they're taking home just under $2,200-ish per month, um, they're in bankruptcy for a period of nine months. So it's not forever. It's not six or seven years. It's nine months. And typically what they pay, instead of making any debt payments, they pay the trustee $200 a month for those nine months. Okay. So bankruptcy can be as inexpensive. I don't know if that's the right word, but as bankruptcy can cost $1,800 as right. a minimum, um, but it is geared to your income. So I've got you know some doctors, dentists who, you know, big debt load, but they're also filing for bankruptcy. And that's based on a percentage of their income they have to pay each month. So if you've never been bankrupt before and you're not low income, you'll be paying a percentage percentage of your income for a year and nine months, so for 21 months in total. Okay, so what do you get to keep 
over that 21 months? I mean, what mm-hmm. do, or, or what do you lose as well, a result? Right. And that's the, another big myth is, you know, when I tell people, oh, I do bankruptcy work, I'm like, wow, people think that must be terrible. You must be going to people's houses, taking everything that they own in their first bone. I'm like, and their firstborn. I'm like, no, we you know the opposite is really true. So basically people keep all of their assets when they go through bankruptcy, except for some assets, which, you know, common sense wise, you would understand you'd have to give up. So people keep all of their household furniture if they file for bankruptcy. They keep all of their clothing and their medical aids. They keep their tools of the trade if they're worth less than $10,000 in total, which they usually are. They keep a vehicle if their equity in the vehicle is worth less than $5,000. They keep their RRSPs, which people, again, a lot of people now know, don't cash in your RRSPs to pay debt because they're protected. But a few years ago, almost on a weekly basis, I was seeing people cashing in their RRSPs, giving assets they wouldn't have had to give um, to satisfy their debts. So for the vast majority of bankruptcies that we see, we don't have to seize any assets because all the folks have is basically exempt assets. Now, if someone's got, you know, I've never seen this, I've got the yacht or the airplane or things like that. Odds are, first off, they would have sold them long ago before they're at the trustee's door. But those type of assets, things beyond what you need to meet your basic needs, those you couldn't keep as part of a bankruptcy. Okay. So um, you've got a question here. What are the ways that bankruptcy affects the person who's filing? And we Mm -hmm. sort of covered some of that already. Yeah. So two big ones. First off, and this makes sense, you get out of debt. So all the debts get forgiven as soon as you're discharged from bankruptcy. And that can be as soon as nine months from the day that you file. Right. Uh, Another big one, and this is life-changing, is you get relief. The creditors can't contact you anymore. They can't call you, harass you, take you to court, demand any payments. They can do nothing to you while you're under the protection of a trustee. Okay. So what are the ways, and this is this is the interesting part, or not the other stuff you've said isn't interesting, <laughs> but yeah. that bankruptcy doesn't affect. It's sort yeah. of, these are the myths. These are, I think I've got about four or five of these, you know, top fears, four of them here that, you know, people, they consistently say to me that they're really hesitant to take action because. So first off is that your spouse is not automatically deemed to be filing bankruptcy. So one member of a married couple could file a bankruptcy or do a proposal and literally have zero impact on the other person. It does not transfer from spouse to spouse. Uh, a second one here is you're not prohibited from changing jobs or employers. So I generally never have to reach out to an employer to tell them somebody's in bankruptcy. I'd only be doing that if they were already having their wages garnished and the employer already knows there's an issue and I'm helping with it. Yeah. But you're free to, to change jobs anywhere you want. There's generally no prohibition for a job that you can or can't take. What about credit? Am, mm-hmm. I, am I sort of stuck there? A lot of people think if you're in bankruptcy, there's a law against you getting credit. Now, literally the day after you filed the bankruptcy, you could apply for credit, but obviously we advise against it, and the law says you have to tell people you're in the state of bankruptcy. Right. But once you're discharged, you know, bankruptcy is going to be on your credit report for six years after you finish it. But most people, the day after they're discharged, they start rebuilding their credit, and within two or three years, they've got better credit than when they started. Okay. And what about uh, wanting to try? travel or mm-hmm. travel for work? Am I am I stopped from doing that? Absolutely not. So you're free to move, free to travel. There's no impact on passports whatsoever. Uh, if you're going through a bankruptcy, there's certain things that you have to do, duties you have to perform, like you know giving monthly budgets and things like that. Those could be done remotely. Um, the only time you really have to see the trustee is for those two counseling sessions, financial counseling. So typically you try to coordinate that you can be with the trustee for those in person, but there are provisions to do them by telephone or even over Skype if someone out of the country. So lots of good information there. And I and I want to stress uh, the website for Sands and Associates. It's sands-trustee.com. And I know, Blair, that a lot of these questions and good answers are also on the website, Absolutely. too. Yeah, I mean, there's literally pages of good information.
information, and it's all divided up into into sections, so you don't have to read everything to find one small answer. Uh, but do check it out, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that first consultation, as well as to find an office near you, and there's 17 offices in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it, and it's you can't argue the fact that debt is overwhelming. Once you get your head around the fact that it exists and that you've got it and you don't know where to what to do next, uh, it's, it's a tough one. But the good news about this segment, it's all about where do you start. Mm-hmm. That's become the new normal, Elaine. You know, if you look around, you know, a crowded place, you probably bet the majority of folks there are carrying some credit card debt, maybe some student loans, some income tax debt. So if you're feeling like you're alone, you're not. Right. But a lot of people fall into this paralysis where they know they've got a problem. They know they should deal with it. But you know what? I'm making a minimum payments every month. I'm going to put this out of my mind. I'm going to focus on other things. So today's segment, this is, you know, part two of one we did a while ago, which we just, you know, we got into some good depth and I had extra content here, but it's all about where do you start? You know, what are some barriers people have where I can't get help for my debt because? Well, let's, let's deal with some of those becauses today. What do you think the number, is there a number one or number two uh, question or call type of call that people that you get you know, from folks? one that I get a lot, uh, which I don't know if it's the most important one, but it's definitely it's very common, is I've just got no idea who I owe money to. So, wow. you know, how do I even begin to, you know, crack the nut when I'm not even sure, you know, how big or small the problem is? Um, so the way we come at that, so, you know, first off, it's pretty rare that someone's got no idea whatsoever because usually creditors are calling you, harassing you, maybe taking you to court. So, you know, sometimes it's, you know, if you don't feel loved in this world, miss a few payments and see what happens. That's People right. will follow up with you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes if you've moved a number of different times uh, or if you've really been you know, off the grid for, for a period of time and your creditors just can't find you, there is a chance you might have no idea who you owe and you know, where do you start that step? Well, first off, I would say you know, start to make a list of who you think you owe. So remember back, you know, who did you have relationships with? Was there a cell phone company? Was there a cable company? Uh, various banks that you dealt with? Just try to put down you know, to the best of your ability who you think you owed. Um, and then sometimes folks have just this stack of un open mail. I say, you're not sure who you owe? Well, I've got this stack of mail here. It's probably in here, but I'm scared to open it. So I tell people, I've said it a lot on this show, I've got a good letter opener in my office, bring in your stacks of mail, we'll go through it and we'll figure things out. Um, But it is a matter of, you know, take a deep breath, put some courage together. The problem is not going to get solved if it's just inside the envelope. It's it's there regardless of whether you look at it. So, you know, open the mail and look at it. Now, if you don't have anything at all, you don't know your online account, you don't um, have any mail that you haven't opened yet, a great place to start is with the credit bureaus in Canada. Okay, how do you do that? Well, so there's two of them. There's Equifax and TransUnion. And a couple of years ago, you might not have known those names at all because they weren't in the news very much. Now you see them in the news a lot because of privacy breaches, data breaches, and things like that. So you probably heard of these guys before, not in a good way. But the fact is, they've got a file on everybody in Canada who has ever accessed the financial system. And some people think, you know, it's difficult or costly to access that information. It's neither. So 
so they don't make it as easy as they could. You can't just phone up Equifax or TransUnion and say, hey, give me my credit report. They make you either go online, you can pay them a fee if you go to their website directly, or, and they don't advertise this much, but on my website on sans-trustee.com, if you click on client resources, uh, we've got a link to a document that you send off to both credit bureaus, and for literally no charge at all, other than the stamp you put on the envelope, they have to send you your long-form credit report, and usually that comes within a couple weeks or so. And would that include, uh, g- uh, like, Canada Revenue, for example, if oh, I owe question. them money? Everything except Canada Revenue okay. would be there, typically. So government debts, um, because the government's got way more power than everybody else, they yeah. don't worry too much about dinging your credit rating. They'll just come and take your assets. We'll talk about that in separate. Um, but basically, anybody else, you know, banks, lines of credit, um, you know, amounts owing for even vehicles or shortfalls or mortgages that you may have had a shortfall on, all of those things, you know, the financial history of your life should be on your credit report. And it's imperative that you get a from both bureaus because believe it or not I pull my credit every year and there's always inaccuracies I think everybody should do so and I'm amazed at what's different even between the bureaus that Equifax has something that TransUnion doesn't have and so on and so forth so some lenders report to both bureaus some lenders report to one um, so you really have to be careful get both credit bureaus uh, reports they can be a bit tough to read you know they'll probably run between you know four and 15 pages depending on the amount of history there Uh, but again it's something that could be a good first step and then with your credit report in hand, make a trip to see the trustee. We'll sit down with it, go through it with you, help you understand what it all means there. What do you do if you're one of those people who cares about uh, not only your credit, but if you've got bad credit? Like, is that a is that a thing? Do people care greatly about that issue. Everybody cares deeply about that issue, yeah. I I guess I'm out there on my own then. (laughs) Well, and and that's a good place to be because part of my life's work is trying to tell people that, you know, in my mind, this focus on a credit rating is the biggest magic trick of misdirection that's being perpetrated on individuals today by the financial industry because we're all being told to focus on this credit rating. Oh, check your credit score online. It's really, really important. But at the end of the day, and we've talked about this before on shows, the behaviors that are rewarded by a credit rating are pretty opposite to what you should be doing. What I mean by that is a credit rating is going to be just stellar if you pay your minimum payments every month on your credit card, even if you never pay that credit card down. You paying your minimum payment might mean that you're paying a ton of interest every month, which everyone would say is financially a bad thing to do, but your credit rating is going to be great for it. And you'll pay it forever, too, Exactly, the never-never plan. So so a barrier for people coming in to see us is sometimes, you know, what do I do about my bad credit? And, you know, there's a couple kind of silos that I would put people people in. Um, you know, one is saying people who are managing their existing debts. So they don't really have a debt problem now. They've got debts they're able to handle or maybe they're out of debt, but their history, their behavior has not been good and now they're dealing with the impact of that. So maybe there's a bunch of debts that they paid delinquent on, a bunch of bad stories on their credit. So how do they rebuild their credit and move forward? You know, the other category of folks is folks where credit rating is kind of the least of their worries because they owe a ton of money and for them to move forward, their credit rating is going to have to take a hit. Okay. So for the first group, if they are managing their debts, you know, important thing to know about credit rating is it moves and it moves more quickly than you would believe. So people can go from, you know, almost a zero credit rating. If you just come out of a bankruptcy, obviously your credit's really bad to getting a mortgage in as little as two to three years. So if someone is thinking, I've got terrible credit now, your calendar to getting that fixed, about two to three years, no more than that. And a couple really quick things, we've done entire segments on this before, um, but a couple really quick things to do is start off by getting your credit report 
report and making sure it's accurate. There right. could be an account on there reporting as delinquent you had no idea about, and it's hurting you every month. So make sure your report is accurate. Uh, one really important metric is utilization. So that means how much of your credit limit are you using on a monthly basis? If your credit limit's a thousand dollars and you're using eight hundred, your utilization is eighty percent, and that's not good. What you want to do is keep your utilization below fifty percent. So if you need to charge eight hundred dollars, well, it's better to have two cards with thousand dollar limits and put four hundred on each, and then you're keeping it under that eighty percent. You are under that fifty percent target for utilization. Okay. You know, the last thing is just being a very diligent consumer. Sometimes the smallest bills, the ones that you pay the least attention to, are the ones that hurt your credit the most. And a cell phone is the best example of this. Unpaid cell phone bills deny people for mortgages more than any other debt I've ever seen. That's um, so interesting. Exactly, because the cell phone companies they know they're not going to take you to court for a few hundred bucks. So they basically the. the whatever the cudgel they've got to beat you with is that they're going to hurt your credit rating pretty quickly. Okay. So pay attention to your cell phone bills. It's not worth uh, missing it for a couple months. You will have a negative impact on your credit. Okay. So what about the, the things to do if you're, uh, that you can do to manage your debt? Because I know you've got four really great ideas. Yeah. So if you're in the situation where you know, you've got some debt, you're not sure if it's you know, overwhelming or not, but you do need a better plan to attack it, yeah. you know, a couple strategies you can do. One is very, very straightforward. is to prioritize the highest interest debt. So you know, sit down and make a very simple list of all of your debts and rank them by interest rates. So if you've got a payday loan, that's going to be at the top for sure. Store credit cards are typically up around the 29 30%. You know, bank credit cards might be 19 to 20%. So put them in a hierarchy based on interest. And then every month, you know, you're going to have to make the minimum payments on each. So, you know, just plan for that. But whatever extra money you're able to devote, you want to prioritize that 100% to the highest interest rate debt that you've got. So if it's a payday loan, after all the other minimums are paid, whatever extra money you can devote needs to go towards that payday loan or then to the store credit card or so on and so forth. So that's one strategy to come at it. You know, another is to consider a debt consolidation loan. Which we hear about all the time. Which sounds wonderful, right? Yeah. If you could ever qualify for one. So that the challenge, and most people come into me, I'm not the first stop. I'm usually, you know, the second, third, sometimes the last stop. They've tried everything else. And to go to a bank for a consolidation loan, they're going to say, well, do you have assets? Do you have something that you can give us, you know, free and clear a charge on so that if you don't pay this consolidation loan back, we're going to have some ability to recover our funds? Most of the time, if somebody had assets, they probably wouldn't need the consolidation loan. They'd be getting home equity or something else. Right. So consolidation loans can be quite difficult to qualify for. If you can qualify for them, it's great because it reduces your interest rate. But you really have to be careful because quite often someone consolidates debts from three or four different cards into one loan. They're paying that loan, but then the other three or four cards are now at zero. And that can be a temptation. Maybe an emergency happens and those cards have to get rung up again. So if you're not going to stop using the original cards that got you into trouble, a consolidation loan might just be, again, enlarging the problem. You're going to have those cards again in a few months because you haven't solved the issue that's got you into debt in the first place. And then when you compare that to making a consumer proposal, there's really no comparison. Exactly. So the big deal with a consumer proposal is, you know, it's better than a consolidation because you don't pay any interest. So right away, it's a lot more affordable. And instead of being required 
required to pay back all of the debt in full. You are required to pay back what you can afford, which typically it's in the range of, you know, 20 to 50%, give or take, depending on the circumstances. Um, but proposals are almost always accepted by creditors because it's a better recovery than if you were to file for bankruptcy. So if you're in a case where you can legitimately pay all of your debts, you've got a surplus of assets, you couldn't do a consumer proposal to reduce your debt. But the vast majority of folks, definitely everyone I see, they've got very few or no assets or the house is mortgaged for what it's worth. A proposal allows them to reduce the debt to what they can afford, gives them time to pay off that reduced balance, and they don't have to file a bankruptcy to deal with the debt. Okay. And then the fourth one being file a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It comes last because it is your last resort. So if nothing else works, um, you know, if it's a case the debt is so severe that even paying off a third of it or a quarter of it just isn't going to be possible. You know, I have some individuals who a few years ago, they were successful professionals. Uh, they've had some really terrible things happen in their life. And, you know, now their income is under $2,000 a month. They've accumulated debts when their income was very high, you know, over $100,000. Asking someone on $2,000 a month income to pay back a third of $100,000 or, you know, $33,000, that's not going to be possible if that person's going to have any quality of life. So in some cases, a bankruptcy is a better solution because a bankruptcy doesn't change at all based on the amount of the debt. So if it's a consolidation loan or if it's a consumer proposal, you're based on the amount of the debt, your payments, whether it's a percentage of it or the full amount. If it's a bankruptcy, it's based on your income. So if you're in a low income situation, a bankruptcy can often be the right solution to get you back to zero. Now, the other thing to remember is that consumer proposals or bankruptcies have to be done by licensed insolvency trustees. Nobody else can facilitate that for you. That's exactly it. I was actually away on vacation. I met with a client before then. And then when I was away, um, you know, we scheduled a meeting for after he came back in. He's like, you know, I did a lot of research when I was away and I figured out I can't do this on my own. I'm like, yeah, I probably probably could have told (laughs) you that. Yeah, that's why I'm here. But unless you want to go and become a trustee, you can't file a proposal or a bankruptcy. (laughs) If you've got any more questions in your head about, oh, gee, I don't know about this or I don't know about that or I don't know what my next step should be, go to the website for Sands & Associates at sands-trustee.com. You can give them a call. I'll give you the 1-800 number, 661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. So this segment's all about C's or Sue. Mm-hmm. And uh, and why are we doing this segment again? Well, you know what, Elaine? This is one wherever, you know, in polite conversation, this matter comes up. Um, nobody knows that this exists. So I've been, you know, we've been doing the show for a number of years. And still, you know, if, I, if I'm having a haircut, for example, and talking to my barber, he mentioned to me, you know, last month, oh, you know, my son is really worried because he's got this vehicle. He owes way more than what it's worth. and He doesn't know what to do with it. Um, I have people come in to see me with meetings, you know, every week. And their only issue is... Is, you know, sometimes they've got a Kia Rio, which is worth $12,000, and they owe $40,000 on it. They're underwater on their car loan, and they don't know what can happen to it. So this is all about uh, having a vehicle, either... Having a loan on the vehicle, or yeah, it's just if you've taken out money to purchase it, right? Yeah, we're going to go into good detail on okay. all of that, but at the end of the day, it's if you've got a car loan, you're underwater on that car loan, meaning that you owe more than what that car is worth. Listen up, because we're going to tell you some things in the province of BC that only apply here that can give you some options you didn't know about. Okay, good. So these are the basics of what seize or sue means and how the rules apply in BC. And I take it that British Columbia is different than other provinces? 
finances? Yeah. So I'm originally from Ontario, so I can speak to Ontario. And what happens in Ontario is if you financed a vehicle, um, you know, say we got that Kia Rio that we're talking about and, you know, it's worth $12,000 at auction and the loan is at $40,000 right now. If you stop making payments on that car in Ontario and they come and repossess the car, um, they're going to take the first 12000 and then they're going to give you a bill saying, well, you owe us the other 28000 plus all of our costs, so you're on the hook for the whole thing. Wow. And yeah. you ha- and that's it. You don't and have a vehicle it. to sell or anything else. It's gone, and you owe the money. And you've got a hangover. So okay. let's talk about how it's different in BC Yeah, here. so how is it different in BC? Right. So some background here. So in BC, there's a law that governs security interests, and it's called the Personal Property Security Act. And what it does, it's sets out some provisions for when this concept called seize or sue would apply. And the conditions are that you reside in BC, uh, your vehicle has been used primarily for personal, family, or household purposes. So what's not listed there is business. So if you're using a vehicle for business, this is not going to work for you, but otherwise it could. Your vehicle is registered in BC, and you've got a loan against the vehicle in which the lender has some security. They've registered a charge or a lien against the vehicle. Okay. So if all those those, uh, conditions are satisfied, what seize or sue means is that in the event you're unable to continue to pay or you simply stop paying on your vehicle loan, the creditor has to take one of the actions against you, but not both. So they can either seize the vehicle pursuant to the lending terms, and that ends all of your future payment obligations. And that's the that's the difference you were talking about then in Ontario, mm-hmm. because your uh, payment obligations are done at that point. So you don't owe any more money on that if they take Right. It. So that's really important that we get that clear. So yeah, yeah so in, in the province of BC, they have to decide either yes. they're going to seize the vehicle, and if they seize the vehicle, that extinguishes all of your financial obligations, or they're going to say, you know what, keep the vehicle, we're going to sue you for the full amount of the loan outstanding, but they can't do both. Right. So in the province like Ontario, which I mentioned, they can do both. They can seize the vehicle, and then they can sue you for all of the unpaid loans. Uh, in the province of BC, they can't do that. Now, is a car dealer, is a car financing organization ever going to tell you this? No. They're going to tell you it's exactly the same as it is in provinces like Ontario, that you, if you don't pay this debt back, we're going to come after you for the full amount of the loan plus. Um, whatever we recover from the seized vehicle, they can't do that in the province of BC. And it's to their advantage not to tell you that. And that's why it's so important to know. Mm-hmm. All that's right. right. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, so your vehicle's repossessed under the loan agreement's terms that your creditor may not ask you for further payments mm-hmm. and ask you to pay the difference on any shortfall. So can you explain that a bit? Yeah, so it's it's more of a case of, you know, when would they, sues to, when would they choose to seize the vehicle or not? Okay. And typically, if the vehicle is still worth a lot, you know, if the vehicle is worth, say, twenty five grand, the loan is for $30,000, they are going to take the vehicle back because, you know, your best loss is something that's certain. They know getting the vehicle back, they're going to sell it, they're going to at least recover most of the loan. You know, if the car is more than two-thirds paid off, or if the car is of relatively little value, um, you know, maybe it's been in a few accidents and it's worth, you know, $3,000 on a loan of $30,000, they might say, you know what, seize, uh, keep the car yourself, we're going to sue you for the full amount. Okay. But in almost every case that I've seen, I can just think of, you know, one or two, and again, 10 plus years of being a trustee, they opt to seize the vehicle because there's some certainty there. They're getting an asset back, um, and then they can't come after you for the shortfall thereafter. Okay. So can we move on to the exceptions for yeah. the Caesar Sue rule in this province? Yeah, I think the exceptions are important. So overall, it's relatively simple. If you've got a vehicle, you stop making the payments, they come to get it, and that it should extinguish your liability. But the exceptions to that, first off, is a lease. 
This does not apply at all if it's a true lease. Okay, and a lot of people lease vehicles. That's right. So if it's the case, you stop making payments on the lease, they're going to repossess the vehicle, but they're absolutely able to hold you accountable for the terms of that lease contract. You signed to contract for all of these payments, and they have the right to, to follow up with you for every missed payment. So it's not it, it's not determined by the value of the vehicle, but the contract that you signed. Yes, you're in breach of a contract if you're not honoring the terms of a lease. So again, they have the right to sue you for specific performance, which means you make all the payments or to sue you for actual damages. But at the end of the day, if a lease is repossessed, that is not the end of the story. It's often the beginning of the story and they will be following up with you for all the unpaid amounts there. Okay, so it, now, if you're if you've leased a vehicle and you give it up, mm-hmm. does that is that helpful at all, or are you still on the hook? Well, it depends. So if you've transferred the lease to somebody else and they've affirmed all the obligations, then you're fine, sure, right? That you know, makes there's sense. you know various sites online where you can try to do it. Sometimes with success, sometimes without. Sometimes you pay a, you know an amount for an incentive, uh, but that is an option. So if someone's thinking, you know, I can't afford this lease, it's definitely in their best interest to try to mitigate as much as possible. Try sure. to get somebody else to take the lease. Try to work with a dealership. You know, get it marketed or something like that. Okay. But a lease is far more difficult to get out of than a financing would be. Okay. So are there some basic points for people to be aware of and just in case your vehicle is repossessed then? Well, and you know, another one to, to think about here, another exception yeah. um, is if you voluntarily surrender the vehicle. Right. So I tend to advise people, you know, if you're going to be exploring this idea of seize or sue and you actually don't wait for them to seize the vehicle, but you just go and drop it off, you sign yeah. a voluntary surrender, you could be contracting out of the provisions in the law. Oh. So what you'd want to do is I generally advise people, you know, if, if money was no object, you would never sign anything unless your lawyer reviewed it first, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So why would you sign something someone puts in front of you saying, hey, you got to sign this to give me back the vehicle? You don't have to sign anything when they come to get the vehicle back. And I'm happy as a trustee if someone sends me a document and says, hey, just before I sign this, you know, am I going to frustrate myself from seize or sue or not? So my advice typically is don't sign anything when you're giving the vehicle back and be aware that if it's not a seizure, if it's a voluntary surrender, it can be not as black and white that you would be protected from the shortfall there. Okay, so that's the difference. What about buyer's remorse in this province? How does that work? Yeah, we did some research on that for the segment, and it basically doesn't exist in in the province of BC. Um, So, you know, there's no buyer's remorse law that governs all vehicle transactions. You know, if your dealership had a return policy, might be something there. Um, You know, if the vehicle didn't meet standards for roadworthiness when you made the purchase, there's, you know, an option to get out of it. But obviously, if you're down the road, that's not going to worry. not going to work too much. There was some material misrepresentation about the vehicle, um, or there is a one clear day cooling off period for a lease. So again, if you, oh. if you sign a lease, you just get one day to cool off after it, but apparently that exists as well. But for other vehicle transactions, there's no uh, you know buyer's remorse laws or cooling off period or things like that. That's kind of good for the lease though, that there's a one day cooling off period, because mm-hmm. you could wake up the next morning and go, what the heck have I just done? Yeah. Because the lease is always, you're always paying far more money for the vehicle than if you just bought it. Yeah, typically there's going to be some interest cost to it. It can sure. make sense in some cases, but you know, quite often it's a more expensive option. For the most, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in winding up, we just got about a minute or so left. What are the? Th- what do you think the things are that we need to leave the folks with on this? You know, I, we have a lot of information. Still. Yeah, I think just a couple really key things. If your vehicle is going to be seized, the way it's going to work um, is a bailiff is going to show up. It's not going to be confrontational. These guys aren't here to have any fights with anybody. Uh, but what you need to do is make sure that the vehicle is insured. Uh, sorry, is insured adequately. 
adequately. So don't cancel the ICBC insurance until the vehicle mm. has been taken away. And make sure you get your license plates off of it when the vehicle is being taken, because without those plates, you won't be able to cancel the insurance. And that would include all your stuff as well. All make your sure all items. your stuff is out of there. That's right. If you've got any more questions, uh, check the website, sands-trustee.com. Or better yet, if you're in this predicament, I know uh, the folks at Sands & Associates are more than happy to talk to you about it. Uh, you can give them a call. Their 1-800 number is 661-3030. You can get that first consultation absolutely free and find one of their offices. They've got 17 offices throughout British Columbia. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.